welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Last week, we moved from chapter 6, bridged the gap, we faithfully jumped chapters and jumped into the first part of chapter 7. We're going to look at the second half of chapter 7 today, starting in verse 15. Here now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The grass withers, The flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our God in heaven, we come to you poor and needy and in need of being fed. I pray that you would help me to rightly divide the word of truth and grant us as a congregation ears to hear. Speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. On the sixth day of the week of creation, God created man in the image and likeness of God, the image and likeness of our triune God, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. In the beginning, man 
and woman were created in sinless perfection. Imagine. Well, it's difficult for us to imagine, really. But in the beginning, man and woman were under the possibility of transgression, transgressing, as our Westminster Confession puts it. They were left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? It did change in the tranquility of the garden. Satan, in the form of a serpent, tempted the woman and she sinned. And man was sure to follow. Theologically, we refer to this as the fall. The greatest catastrophe in the history of the world. That's not hyperbole. Plaguing the creature and creation from that moment forward. Such is the ancestral inheritance. Congratulations. That's your, you're wondering what your inheritance is. There it is. You've received, I've received our inheritance. And by the way, it leads to death, ultimately. Everything bad and sad in this life under the sun is the result of that one moment in time. That's it. That's the point, the fall. And neither you nor I, we have never known a nanosecond of existence apart from it. We've never known that moment in time like Adam and Eve did of sinless perfection. Never, ever. We are fallen. But because God created us in the beginning with reasonable and immortal souls endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after His image, theologically speaking, we would say while we are totally depraved in our comprehensivity, we are not utterly depraved in our humanity. Let me put it this way. In our image-bearing likeness, we share God's communicable attributes. And seared on our consciences is the sense of right and wrong. This is why, for example, when you and I see Injustice, when we see inequity in the world, it bothers us. And I might add, even if we're guilty of the same, it still bothers us when we see it. It is truly as if we know that's not how it should be. That everything that is true of this reality is not true eternally. We hear echoes of Eden in the conviction of our consciences. There is a yearning. There is a yearning in all of us for things to be right again. Like it was in the beginning. Like it was before the fall. But in this passing passing moment that we call life, sin is an ever-present reminder that we are not where we once were, nor where we long to be. And so Solomon begins this passage with this statement. In my vain life, I have seen everything. Now, I'll remind you that the Hebrew word that is translated here, vain, means a vapor 
or breath. So in essence, what he's saying here is life is short, as short as the breath of air. But in his brief life, Solomon has uniquely been granted providential perspective. His statement of everything, of course, is hyperbole. So what's he saying? What he's saying is it's not that he has seen it all without exception, but that he has seen life's exceptions, inequities that should not be. That we know internally, all of us, that that's not right. That's wrong. He sees, this is the example he gives, he sees a righteous man who dies young. And he sees a wicked man who grows old. Now, good students of your Bibles, you will know this. You will know that in Proverbs, it tells us that a righteous life is rewarded with longevity. But the moral man that Solomon sees is rewarded with death, early death. So is the wisdom of Proverbs wrong? Is that what Solomon is saying? No, but there are exceptions. It's like the person that said to me one time, they said, you know, in, in raising my, my kids, I, I'm, just, I'm just claiming that promise in Proverbs. Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they'll not depart from it. And the bearer of bad news consistently, I'm equal opportunity bearer of bad news, I said... You know, that, that's, that's, not, that's not a promise. It's, it's called a truism. The Proverbs are truisms. They're not promises. And so, that is true, but it's not always true. There are exceptions to it. In other words, there can be the one, uh, the, the godly man and woman who raise their child in the Lord and they, they do everything, quote-unquote, right. And one child is a godly child. The other child is crazy bad. And then there can be unbelieving parents who don't know the Lord, might not even know the name of Jesus, and they raise an extraordinarily moral child. So there are exceptions to it. To dance around it, to try to retranslate it, as one famous pastor did, saying, well, you know, that Bible verse really is talking about their occupation. Train up a child to be a plumber, and they'll grow up to be a plumber. I'm like, no, it doesn't. That's just silly. What it means is, is that there are truisms in this world. That's the way God designed it. And so when you're reading Proverbs, you're reading along, you're going, yeah, all right, a righteous life. I'm going to live to be 100 years old, and, and, and my kids are going to grow up to be godly. And then you get to Ecclesiastes, and Solomon says, uh, there's a footnote to, to Proverbs. This is the footnote. There are exceptions in life. And that's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying that's not how it should be. The righteous man should live a long life. The wicked man should burn out. He should flame out early. But sometimes there are exceptions. Yet if this is not how it should be, how do we respond to such exceptions? I mean, isn't that frustrating? You read the Proverbs and you want to go, boom, take it to the bank, baby. Promise. That's what we want, right? The absolutist, the literalist of us, that's what we want. I've got it now. I've got it. Now I know how life works. It's an equation. 
A plus B equals C equals good godly child. Oh, I, I forgot the equation. Maybe I didn't get the equation right. Something went wrong. How do we deal with the exceptions of life? That's what Solomon is pointing us to. How do we live a life filled with such uncertainties? Think about it. You don't know what's going to happen minutes from now. Solomon answers this quandary with two extremes. And I'm going to add here that I think these are actually comical. Some would disagree with me. But I think at this point, Solomon to a certain extent is having a little bit of fun and showing us the extremes. He's going to say, okay, here's how not to respond to a life of exceptions. Here's how not to respond to a life of uncertainties. Don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wicked. So, so they're extremes. And, and what he does is he starts out here and he's going to tell us, he's going to point out this overly righteous person. Now, Theological insert. Sound doctrinal insert. Solomon is not talking about what we would refer to theologically as positional righteousness. He's talking about practical righteousness. Positionally, we know that by God's grace, through faith in Christ, we are justified as righteous. And that righteous is not overly, it's perfect. It's complete. We also know that anyone apart from Christ is eternally condemned. Not overly wicked, completely condemned. And so what Solomon is doing here is using hyperbole. He is making a practical point. Don't miss the practical point because it's so brilliant. Think about this. Overly righteous, overly wicked. Who are these overachievers? Who are these people? Well... You know those overly righteous, right? Because they're the ones who define righteousness not according to the Bible, but according to their own biases. They're obnoxious. Their list of sins exceeds the standards of Scripture. And they're most happy when you're forced to comply with their standards. Even that which is not a sin, they skillfully craft into a sin, manipulating Scripture to tie burdens around the necks of their neighbors. Claiming to be recipients of grace, essentially what these overachievers are, they're practical legalists. Looking down their pharisaical noses at anyone who enjoys liberty. Don't be overly righteous. But Solomon says, also don't be overly wicked. Because the overly wicked are those who manipulate the definition of grace to include their licentiousness. In their warped mind, when Paul says at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? They go, yeah! Because doesn't that give evidence of God's grace? The more I sin, the more we witness God's grace. That's a warped way of thinking, but that's the overly wicked. Their list of sins then is very different. You say, God calls us to a pursuit of holiness. They say, ah, that's legalism. Claiming to be in Christ, they would have His heaven, but not His commands. Rather than abiding in His life, the overly wicked are bent on destruction. 
Solomon cautions this. Look at verse 18 with me. It's a solid caution. It is good that you should take hold of this. What he's saying there is learn from this. Learn from these two extremes. Learn from this. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now think carefully about what he's just said there. The fear of God will help you see the way between these two extremes. And here's why. Because legalism and licentiousness are two sides of the same coin. Practice neither. Avoid both. For manufactured merits and loosed living come not from God, but they come from our sinful flesh. By God's grace, God shows us our sin. That's part of God's grace. It really is, believe it or not. Hard for the world to believe, I know. But part of God's grace is opening up and and letting us see our sin. But He doesn't leave us there, does He? He shows us our sin and then He shows us a Savior. I love the way in his book, Pensay, Blaise Pascal explains this. He says this, listen so closely. He says, Knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. Knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. Knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because He shows us both God and our own wretchedness. (laughs) And so where is Solomon taking us? Well, in the first part of this passage, what he's showing us is, is that life is uncertain. And it is so full of exceptions. But our salvation is not. Our salvation is not uncertain. It is not full of exceptions. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's that simple. The second thing that Solomon does in this passage is he introduces to us what philosophers or theologians might call the problem of sin. We've got, we've, got a, we've got a big problem, right? We've got a problem, the problem of sin. And he's going to do it here, beginning in verse 13. He says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. But by making that statement and by carrying it out in the passage that follows, what he's going to show us is, is that wisdom is awesome and it has its limits. Wisdom has its limits. Solomon says in verse 19 that wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Which is a Hebrew idiom basically meaning the maximum amount of strength. That's what wisdom gives you. Strength. But there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Hmm. Sound familiar? How about Romans chapter 3? Practically speaking... The wise man seeks to live a righteous life. But positionally, before a holy God, we always fall short. Paul said, there is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so this is the problem. This is the problem of sin. Is that if no one is positionally righteous then how are we to live righteously? 
And I might add, also just the motivation, if no one is positionally righteous, why even try? You and I might think we are doing our best. John, I'm just living, living the best life I can. But Solomon reveals our hypocrisy. And again, I think he does this in a witty sort of way. He says, let me explain to you the depth of your sin and your hypocrisy. Your tongue. Your tongue will give you away. Interestingly enough, one of the places that the Apostle James points us. Here, he says in verse 21, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now think about what he's saying there. He's saying that you may think nothing of your careless words, but if you hear that someone has said something about you, you're enraged. We may be offended by what someone has said about us or what someone has done to us. And we think, I will never get over that. But then we do the same and we go, what's your problem? What's the deal? Just get over it. It's me. (laughs) The point is, we are hypocrites. All of us. From one degree to another because we see each other's sins far more clearly than we see our own. But before God, but before God, we are all guilty. Not only in our words, but in our thoughts and our deeds. And this is a problem, and it's a problem that Solomon says, wisdom ain't going to fix that. The wisest man of the world stared the problem of sin in the face and said, Nope, no can fix. All this, Solomon says, I have tested by wisdom, but it was far from me. What he's saying there by far from me is, is I looked at it, I studied it, I dug deeply, and It wasn't there. In fact, I dug even deeper. And I dug deeper and I dug deeper. And wisdom cannot solve the problem of sin. But wisdom can help in this. Wisdom can reveal the folly of sin. Wisdom can reveal the folly of sin. Now, in verses 25 through 29, I want to say something that many of you, if not all of you, may have been thinking while I was reading it. A number of things you may have been thinking. Number one, surely this is that passage of Scripture that John talks about in Sunday school when he says the good thing about preaching through a book is that you have to preach through hard passages. Here it is. The second thing that you may be thinking is, wow, that sounds like the rant of a male chauvinist. That sounds like a maelstrom of misogyny. That sounds to me like Toxic masculinity. And some have interpreted it that way. But that's not what Solomon is saying. You may recall, as wise students of Scripture, that it is characteristic of Solomon to use the female pronoun in personifying an attribute. Think about it with me. Think about your study, your reading of Scripture. 
It is common for Solomon to use the female pronoun to personify an attribute. And you say, okay, give me an example. Well, this is an easy one. Proverbs chapter 3. In Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon personifies wisdom. And here is what he says about her. Gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. And so Solomon characteristically is engaging the female pronoun here, the description of a woman. But I want to pause and also remind you that wisdom is not the only woman in Proverbs, is she? There's another woman in Proverbs, for example, as well. She's a woman who is enticingly forbidden with smooth words and seductive charm. She is not meek. But Proverbs says she's loud. She's wayward. Her heart, Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes, her heart is snares and nets, and her hands are fetters. Beware, Solomon says. Many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Who's the woman? She's not wisdom. She's the folly of sin. She is lady folly. Thankfully, her attributes are recognizable. I might add, they're easily recognizable. In a lineup of a thousand men, Solomon says, there she is. She stands out. She's noticeable. You'll see her for sure. But though we know her, though we see her, Though many of us can immediately identify and say, that's the folly of sin. Knowing her and seeing her, we can still be easily ensnared by her, can't we? And here is the advantage of living righteously. Solomon says in verse 26, He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. It's a real practical statement. What he's saying is, is that the righteous sees Lady Folly and he flees from her like Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. That kind of fleeing. But the wicked, they're gullible. I know she's Lady Folly, but she's so pretty. I know she's Lady Folly, but I love to listen to her words. And like... In Homer's The Odyssey, the siren songs, they're so enticing until sin strikes. Observing, knowing, recognizing the folly of sin, however, does not solve the problem of it. And and Solomon's clear about this. Despite his wisdom, the problem of sin still exists. Sin remains, and we see evidence of its folly around us. Think about it, just to summarize the passage that's in front of you. We see the righteous die young. That's not right. We see the wicked live on. That's not right. 
The overly righteous are still obnoxious. The overly wicked, they're still terrible. When somebody said something behind your back, if not yesterday, they will today. Ah, man, life. And the list goes on and on. And it can lead you, it can lead you to a point of despair. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many people interpret Ecclesiastes as a depressing, a despairing book. Because I think they get about half of it right. And the half of it is, is that the reality of this should lead you to despair. You should look at it and go, life's not how it should be. I don't like this at all. I'm upset about it. And I don't know that I can go on like this. Is there no hope of life without sin and suffering and sadness? Is the purity of Eden forever out of reach? Is this all I can hope for? In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Return of the King, I hope you've read it. In The Return of the King, Tolkien gives us a picture of Sam, Sam the Hobbit. And Sam has gone through the battle, and the battle is over, and the ring has been destroyed, and Sam has been unconscious, and, and, he, and he wakes up. And he wakes up, and he realizes he survived. And then he's surprised, because there in front of him is Gandalf. How great is this? I survived, and Gandalf is alive, and he's right here with me. And he turns to him, knowing that everything that has happened is so significant, and he asks this question to Gandalf. He says, Is everything sad going to come untrue? That's a hard question. I'm going to read it to you again. Is everything sad going to come untrue? It's quirky, isn't it? It's a curious question. Why ask it that way? Because he's not asking whether good things are going to come true, but whether sad things are going to come untrue. But it's, it's an echo of Eden. Will the sad reality of the fall one day no longer be reality? It doesn't take long in reading Ecclesiastes to realize that Solomon is teaching us that the world is not as it should be. We all long for a day when everything sad comes untrue. But is this even possible in a world full of sinners? And Jesus said this, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The Apostle Paul elaborates, I think, on what Jesus said when he says this. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, in, in God's mercy, 
in God's grace, God has dealt with our sin problem. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Positionally, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, we are perfectly righteous. Without exception. Practically, through His Spirit, we are enabled to live in obedience to Him. And while in this life, under the sun, you and I battle our sinful flesh, Christ is preparing for us a place where the inequities of this life are not true. Where the righteous never die. Where there is no folly, nor sadness, because sin no longer is. This is the Christian hope. That in the final consummation, we will hear from heaven, Behold, I am making all things new. And on that day, Everything sad comes untrue. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, You know that we are sinful people living out this life under the sun. And yet in Your mercy, in Your grace, You sent Your only Son to die that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we trust in Him, our Lord and our Savior. And as today, as we gather together as a church, and as we have heard the reading and the singing, the preaching of God's Word, and so now are to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we pray even now that we would look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our salvation. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.